invite you to stand with me, as most of you already are. Um, today's passage comes from Galatians 3:15 to 25. Uh, so follow along as I read. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that was what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that the faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. All right, good, mor- good morning, everyone. Uh, looks like, it looks like the Lord wanted us to show the video for the youth uh, next Sunday, not this Sunday, for uh, some reasons that he knows. So we will uh, definitely view that. But um, we praise God and thank God for uh, truly the, the work that he's doing in our youth, um, yeah, just our student ministries, and as we sang in this song, uh, that this would be a generation that would rise up and take its place and would truly glorify God. So uh, we're very excited. Uh, it's good to continue to go into God's Word this morning in Galatians, and uh, as we do so, I'm going to just ask us to go to the uh, Lord in prayer, and uh, let's ask the Lord to open our hearts and uh, to reveal uh, somewhat confusing truths, but hopefully it will be clear this morning as we go through His Word, so please join me. Father, uh, we are so thankful, God, for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from the curse of the law who did what no one else could ever do and did it on our behalf to fulfill the law's demands, uh, to satisfy your justice, uh, your righteousness, your, even to appease your wrath from us. We are so thankful, Jesus, you are our Lord and Savior and King. I pray that as we go into your word, uh, Lord, that this glorious truth of the gospel would um, transform our hearts, our lives, Lord, that we would see um, our relationship to the law and how it should drive us to you, but how it should also transform the way, they, the way that we live as well. And so, Lord, would you be glorified? Would you take your word? Would you make it clear? Uh, would you help simplify it in our hearts? Would you give us understanding? 
Uh, would you enable us to live in response to it? And we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Um, you know, before I go into this passage in uh, verses 15 to 25, I felt like it's important for me to kind of just review um, a couple of very, very important themes that we've been going over in Galatians. Um, some of this text and some of the concepts in the Galatians, I realize, can be a bit confusing. And uh, there's some language in here that I, ha- I have to just grapple with and uh, asking the Lord all the time, what does this mean? What does this mean? So um, one of the, the concepts here is this idea of justification by faith. And uh, I think that, um, you know, some of us know it and we kind of know intellectually a little bit. And some of us, I think, are a little bit still trying to grasp it. But uh, I do want us to kind of talk a little bit more about this. But um, the central question throughout Scripture the biggest question that the scripture is always asking of us is this question, how is it that we as sinful, guilty people, how can we actually have a relationship with a God who is holy, a God who is 100% righteous, uh, full of justice? How can we be in his presence? How is that possible? Um, how then does this justification give us the basis for how do we relate to God, but how do we relate to one another? How do we live our lives in this world? Uh, These are the central questions that the Bible is really answering for us. And to highlight this, I'd like to kind of share with you uh, an interview that I came across this past week that came to my attention. And I'm just going to share with you just an excerpt of this. There's this man, uh, how many of you guys know this political commentary, uh, commentator? His name is Ben Shapiro. Anyone hear of him? Okay, all right. So Ben Shapiro had once interviewed this guy named uh, Bishop Robert Barron. And he posed this question before Bishop Barron and, and asked him, well, who gets to go into heaven? Um, and is it possible to get to heaven outside of Jesus Christ himself? And he says this to Bishop Barron. He says, I feel like I lead a pretty good life, uh, a very religiously based life in which I try to keep not just the Ten Commandments, but the solid 603 other commandments as well. And I spend an awful lot of my time promulgating what I would consider to be a Judeo-Christian virtues, particularly in Western societies. I might basically screw here. If I don't put my trust in Jesus, is that it? I don't get to go to heaven? I mean, I've lived a pretty good life. And look at Bishop Barron's response. I want you to uh, pay close attention to how he responds to this question. Bishop Barron says, Christ is the privileged route to salvation. The privileged. But it might not be be received, or but it might be received according to your conscience. So if you're following your conscience sincerely, or in your case, you're following the commandments of the law sincerely, you're, you're promulgating your Judeo-Christian values, yeah, you can be saved, quote-unquote. Now, this is actually... Um, Ben Shapiro, his comments are very similar to what 
in Scripture, a rich, young, wealthy, powerful ruler once came to Jesus and asked Jesus the very same question. He told Jesus, he said, Jesus, I followed all the commandments. I've been pretty good. I've, I've tried to do everything you asked me to do. I've lived my life, I think, pretty, pretty darn well. And he asked Jesus, what must I do? What, what else must I do to earn or to get this eternal life? Well, if you've been following closely along what we've been talking about in the book of Galatians, I think the answer is very clear. That there is no amount of our good works and there is no amount of our good moral living that would earn us eternal life before God. And this term that Paul is talking about in Galatians is this term called justification by faith. You are justified by faith in Christ alone. And what is justification by faith? Justification is a legal word borrowed from the Roman um, court, courtroom terminology, vocabulary. And justification means it is the act whereby God declares you and I, the believing sinner, to be righteous based on the work of Jesus Christ so that we no longer receive death, wrath, and condemnation, but can stand confidently before God as if we had never sinned. As if we had never sinned. This is justification by faith, and this is the central truth of the gospel. And this is what enables us to relate to God. Now imagine that you come to the end of your life. You're standing before God, holy, righteous judge of the universe. And you plead your case before God, and you say, God, God asks you, well, why should, I, why should I let you into my heaven? And you plead your case, and you say, well, I've been pretty good about CFC Sundays. You know, I've, I've, I serve on the homeless. Um, I go out with the homeless team every fourth Sunday of the month. Um, I, tr I try to be as kind as I could. I, I try to have a good work ethic. Uh, I try to be nice to other people. I've tried to live my life um, as well as I, as I possibly could. But then the prosecutor reads off a list of all these things that you didn't mention, right? All the ways that you and I had acted selfishly. All the small and big compromises that we had made in our lives. All the ways that we had put our needs above other people's needs. Um, all the ways that we thought that these things were more important than God in our lives. We put our school, our career, our work, our achievements, all these other things to say these, God, are more valuable, more important to me than you. All the ways that we had gone against God from birth to death. And you begin to feel kind of sheepish and embarrassed. You kind of begin to hang your head a little bit low, feel um, the evidence is very clear. It's overwhelming. It's... Um, and you're ashamed. And God is a holy judge of the universe. Instead of pounding his gavel and condemning you guilty, he actually pounds his gavel and says, I declare you to be righteous. Righteous. And you're shocked. How could I be declared righteous? How is that possible? And that is because this holy judge of the universe takes you and I, our sentence of guilt and death and condemnation, and he places it upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that the 
only innocent person who ever lived in this life, the one who never violated one single commandment, the one who loved God with all his heart, mind, strength, and soul perfectly, that he's the one who takes you and I, our penalty, our guilt, and then he says, I'm going to give you my righteousness instead. This is the truth of justification by faith. It's a glorious, glorious truth. And it is the truth by which we stand. Um, I want to mention a few things about this, and we can go over this a little bit quickly. But I want to mention by, uh, just very briefly four things about justification by faith. First, it's full, it's full and instantaneous. It's not partial. When, do, when God declares you righteous, it's not 80%, it's not 50%, it's not 99%, it's 100% righteous. There can be no middle ground. Either you are 100% declared righteous in God's sight, or you are 100% condemned, but there's no middle ground with justification by faith. It's a declaration of righteousness, not of being righteous. Uh, when God declares you righteous, he doesn't look within you and say, you know what, there are some things, I, I see some you know, good qualities, and um, I'm going to kind of take these good qualities I kind of see in you, and I'm going to mix it together, and I'm going to declare you righteous. No, that's not how it works. It's not a being, it's not a declaration that you actually are righteous. It's a, it's a declaration of the righteousness that comes in Christ. It's something that's outside of you, not within you. And it comes through believing, not by obeying, as we've seen in the past couple weeks of the messages. It doesn't come by your obedience, but by faith. And finally, um, that God justifies sinners, not good moral people. If somehow we are thinking that, wow, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person. Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty, I'm fairly, I'm better than most people that I know. Uh, we are not qualified to be justified by faith in Christ. God will only justify those who know that they are guilty sinners before him and know their need for justification. And this is the heart of why Paul calls this gospel the gospel of grace. You did nothing to earn it. It's a completely free gift given by God. And when you are justified by faith in Christ, it is one of the most glorious, um, liberating, joy-invoking truth in your life. Because you can be assured, some of you are wondering, am I saved? Am I going to get to heaven? Well, don't look within you. Look to Jesus. Your assurance comes from something, a source outside of you, not from within you. You look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't deserve it. I am guilty, I see my sin, but I see you. And you are my justification. You are the reason why I'm going to get to heaven, not because of anything that I've done. And you can have confidence of being secure in the love of Christ that, hey, whatever life throws at you, whatever punches, right? Uh, life is not easy. You go through all kinds of, um, you, you know, there's all kinds of blows and punches. There are all kinds of circumstances. Um, and if you're basing your justification or your relationship with God on how things are going in your life, your Christian life will, you know, it'll be a roller coaster. But if you base it upon the finished work of Jesus on your life, you have a confidence. You have a security to be able to, to take you through whatever life throws your way. This is so important. And we could talk on and on about that. But I want to raise another question. And um, this kind of goes into actually the passage uh, this morning, this afternoon now. 
And I remember uh, several years ago that I was talking with a, a Christian a brother, and, and he was telling me about how he grew up in this very, very conservative church, very conservative church environment, and uh, he felt like he didn't want to make his Christianity, his faith about these rules, right? Like, I didn't want to, you know, he was talking about reading the Bible every day. And he was saying, oh, like, you know, I don't want to make Bible reading a rule in my life, you know, because Christianity is not about rules. It's about a relationship. That's what he said. So if someone tells me to read the Bible every day, well, I feel like that's more of a rule. Well, I think this raises more questions, right? So some people, some Christians might be tempted to say, well, I'm justified by faith in Christ, so it doesn't matter how I live. I'm just going to cast out these rules, so to speak. Why should I strive to live this holy life before God? Why should I obey God's rules, so to speak, his word, his law? And so the question I want to ask us today is, well, what is the relationship that we as Christians have who are justified by faith in Christ to the law? What is that relationship like? What should it look like? And this is really the question that Paul is addressing in this passage. Now, again, I'm sorry if I'm sounding a little bit redundant to some of you, but I believe that this is important enough to bear repeating. What is the law? We've been using this terminology, okay? But what is the law? When we talk about the law in the Bible, um, you could talk about it in a couple ways. The first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Torah, or known as the law. But these first five books of the Old Testament also contain a series of actual laws, right? Hence the, the term, uh, the genre, terminology, the law, right? Well, what is actually, the, what's contained, what kind of laws? There are three different things or aspects of the law. First, we have something called the moral aspect of the law. So when you think of the moral aspect, think about the Ten Commandments. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Think of that, okay? That's the moral aspect of the law. But you have also something called the ceremonial aspect of the law. And think about the priests and all the garments that they had to wear in the temple and um, the ritual cleansing laws and and all of that stuff. And so that's a ceremonial aspect. But then the finally, uh, the third part is something called the civil law. So in the Old Testament, God had defined a series of um, crimes and punishments, appropriate crimes and punishment. If something happens in this way, then this is a punishment of the consequence for that. And so when Paul is talking about the law, right, um, he's referring to these aspects of the law. This is what Galatians is talking about. More specifically, he's talking about the moral and ceremonial aspects, the first two aspects okay, in Galatians. So that's important. Well, I want us to get into this text, and I want us to look at, well, what is our relationship as Christians to the law? First of all, Galatians, and what Paul is trying to argue, is that Salvation is based on a gift promise, not law performance. It's based on the gift promise, not law performance. Look at verses 15 to 16 with me. Paul says, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
Now, Paul is continuing to argue that salvation or justification is completely a gift of God received by faith on our part. And the way he's proving this is he's using the example of Abraham in the Old Testament. And he's saying, look, um, let's take this example of covenants, promises, you know, that we make with each other or maybe in modern terminology, these contracts sometimes that we establish. But what he's saying is that God had established a covenant, a promise to Abraham, and he promised that Abraham would bear a seed, singular, meaning Christ himself, and that through the seed, Christ, that all the nations of the, the earth will be blessed. This is the great promise. And that whoever is united to the seed, again, will be heirs of Abraham, will receive this inheritance. And this promise that God made to Abraham was completely unconditional. There's no strings attached. It's just, I promise, and that's that. Okay? And there's nothing that can take that away. Now, some people, Paul is anticipating is this. Some people are saying, well, now that the law has been introduced 430 years later, does that mean that um, we have to obey the law to receive this inheritance that God promised? Did, did God sort of change his mind a little bit? Say, hey, I, I know I promised you this, but let me introduce you to these set of laws. And, and if you can do this, yeah, then, you know, I'm going to make due on that promise I gave to you. And Paul's emphatic response is no, not at all. The law does not overturn God's promise. That's not what it does. Look at verses um, 17 to 18. What I mean is this, is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on, um, then no longer depends on promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Through a promise. The law cannot overturn what God has already promised. I read, um, I actually saw this YouTube clip that was kind of fascinating about American Airlines. And did you know that American Airlines, uh, this is back in the 1980s, uh, but they were quickly going bankrupt. And to, in a sense, savage their, their company, what they did was they made something called the American Airline Pass. And for a grand sum of $250,000, if you purchased an American Airlines pass at that time, you were entitled to unlimited flights the rest of your life all over the world with unlimited access to their admirals, American Admirals Lounge in the world. $250,000. Now, that's still a lot of money, but back then, yeah, it's, it's a lot of money back then. But how many of you would have gone for it? Like, well, no, okay, not too many of us. I, we don't have that much, okay. Uh, but if you had the money, right, unlimited. And one thing that American Airlines, they didn't count on, right, they're thinking of just like kind of the sort of average flyer or maybe a little bit above average frequent flyer. But there are a couple of gentlemen, his, their names were Steve Rothstein, and this other name, uh, this other guy named Jacques Vroom. <laughs> and American Airlines was losing literally millions of dollars on these guys because um, every single year they were 
racking up like millions of miles, millions and millions of miles every year, taking full advantage of these American Airlines passes. Now, as you can imagine, um, these passes, as soon as the executives caught, caught wind of what was happening, they immediately revoked the deal, right? So it was only there for a short window, and if you took advantage of it, um, and there is, what happened was American Airlines went to revoke it, revoke the actual deal originally made with Steve Rothstein and Jacques Vroom. And they went to this like, high like, legal battles, litigation, and all of that. But as much as American Airlines want to revoke the program and the offer, they could not do it. A deal was a deal. The contract was sealed, it was signed, it was a promise. And as much as they realized you know, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. At that point, it was a done deal. What God does, what God did, what Paul is saying with Abraham is that this inheritance, this promise that God gave to Abraham, it's a done deal. And the law cannot revoke it. It's set. Salvation is by promise. Well, this raises a question that Paul anticipates in verse 19. Look at verse 19, he says, well, what then is the purpose of the law? If it's already a done deal, why would God introduce all these laws to us? Like, what's, what's that all about? Well, one answer to that question is, Paul's gonna talk about is to show you your great need for a savior. To show you your great need for a savior. Look at verse 19. He goes on to say, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise had referred had come. It was added because of transgressions. Now, um, there's a lot of confusion about what this actually means, and there's tons of interpretations about it, but um, the one that I think makes sense is given by this guy named Thomas Schreiner. He's a professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Seminary, Theological Seminary. But he basically says that the law, what it does is it basically exposes sin. It exposes how deep you and I our sins are. That's what the purpose of the law was. Okay? Without the law, you and I would not know our great need for a Savior. Have you guys ever been to a hotel, right? And when you go to the hotel room, uh, one of the things I love doing, or not love doing, but it's kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool and fascinating is I go to the room or to the bathroom and then you have, they have those gigantic mirror things, you know, and then you flip it and then it's like, you look at, oh my goodness, that's my face. And it magnifies it like a, a hundred times or something like that. And then you see all these like little zits and pores that you never saw before. You go, oh man, that, that's my face, right? And you kind of shirk back. It's like, oh man, right? Well, that's kind of what the law does. The law has an effect to expose and to show you these things that you never saw about your heart and your life before. Expose and it intensifies it, right? Um, and it's very uncomfortable. But why would God do that? Well, Paul says, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come to intensify our need for Christ. Verse 21 Paul goes on to say, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that can impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Paul's saying, the law was never meant to save you, to impart life. Um, 
verses 22 to 25. I'm going to just go on. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. There's two more things I want to point out about the, the effect of the law. Paul uses these two, um, these two analogies. One is prison. Look at the way the law imprisons us, so to speak. He repeats over, we were held prisoners, we're locked up. Right? In other words, what the law shows is it, is it exposes more and more sin in you and I, our lives. What it shows us is our powerlessness, our inability. Right? You come to the point when you see your, your God's word and you come to see God's law and you come to see, wow, I fall really short of this. And I, as much as I try to improve or as much as I try to change myself, it just doesn't work that way. You're locked up. Sin is a power that enslaves. And the law exposes that. The second analogy that Paul uses is this idea of a tutor. Um, if you look here, it says that the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Now, this translation doesn't draw it out as much, but it's this idea of, of uh, the law is given sort of as a tutor to you. Now, back then in Roman culture, if you had enough money, you could hire this sort of live-in nanny, right, who, who could take care of your kids. And this nanny would just kind of tutor this child uh, all the way through. And Paul's using this idea, this analogy to say that this tutor of the law is trying to lead you to something else, which is namely Jesus. Um, some of you are, are Trekkie fans, Star Trek fans. Um, and uh, one of the episodes or one of the movies I remember that, that I watched about Star Trek, uh, I'm not a big Trekkie, but I, I did watch some of those movies. And um, I remember it was the episode where uh, Captain Kirk, James Kirk, he actually becomes the youngest uh, Starfleet captain, you know, ever in the history. And not only that, but he was the only guy who became the captain of the Starfleet without having failed the test. Apparently, there's this test that, you know, they had to go through this obstacle course and this test your intellectual rigor and your strategy and all these things if you could kind of figure it out. But no one ever passed it. Everyone is a 100% fail rate until James Kirk. And somehow James Kirk passed it on his first try. And then because the whole council is just like, you know, just dumbfounded on how he could do it, he had to come before the council and they interrogated him. How did you, how'd you do it? There's no way. Like it was designed for you to fail. And what we realized later on as the movie kind of unfolded is that uh, somehow he had gamed the system, right? And he gamed it outside he kind of got the cheat sheet so to speak to know how to to go about what the what the loophole was in the system well um the law is a system in a sense that was to show you that you cannot pass that you're bound to fail it is meant to actually show you that this is what paul is kind of saying and this is very humbling for you and i 
And this is why justification by faith is not that easy to accept either. You and I, you know, I think we tend to be achievers. We tend to be goal-oriented when it comes to school, when it comes to work. What do we say? What do we do? We're going to say, we're going to crush this, right? We're going to, like, you know, whatever obstacles, whatever I need to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to succeed. I'm, no one wants to be a failure. No one. It's not a good feeling. And no one, we don't want anyone to think that we can't handle it, that we can't succeed in whatever we put our minds to. We don't want anyone to, to feel that way about us. And to fail is devastating, right? It's humbling. It's shameful. And yet this is exactly what the law was meant to do. It's meant to humble us, to show us that sin is powerful. It's enslaving that we need freedom, we need a savior. This is what the law is trying to, 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 to do in our lives. Now, pro the problem is not the law. Actually, the law is good. The law is holy, the Bible says. So the problem is not the law. The problem is you and I. And Jesus knows that the law is good, and he had such a high view of the law that he said, I didn't come to do away with the, with the law. If you think the law is opposite of me, no, that's not true. I came to fulfill it. This is what Jesus came to do. And the gospel tells us that Jesus came to fulfill what you and I failed to do, all the demands of the law. He obeyed it perfectly. He never sinned once, not one, not one iota of any impure thought or attitude, not one selfish act on his behalf. Never became jealous, angry, hateful, unloving. This is what Jesus alone did. And when we put our faith in Christ, when we say, you know what, I failed. I know I need a Savior. I know, I know my failures. And we put our faith in Jesus. Jesus, I need you as my Savior. He's the one who justifies you. Christ himself says, that's right. You do see your failure, and that's why you need forgiveness. And you need the righteousness that can only come from him. Well, once you are saved, the law has another purpose in your life. And I'm going to get to this uh, outside the Galatians. But once you're saved, the law is, takes on a whole different perspective. Once you're saved, it shows you how to live your life in a way that honors God. That's what the law does. How to live your life in a way that really honors him. You know, you're not saved because you followed the rules well. Right? Quite the opposite. It's only Jesus who's righteous. And yet, once you come into a relationship with Christ, once you know who God is, you want to follow his rules. You want to follow his law. This is what, what Jesus does in your life. You know, Mimi and I, uh, last year, wow, we celebrated 25 years of marriage, right? 25 years. And, you know, the basis of our marriage is not the contract, right? It's the basis of our marriage is love, it's, it's nurture, it's respect, it's faithfulness, it's all those things. But just because the, the basis of our marriage is not based on some contract, doesn't mean that there aren't rules that we abide by. In fact, there's quite a few rules in our marriage, and these rules are so important that we decide to stand before hundreds of people 
to recite these rules, these vows with one another. These vows that we're going to stay married and faithful in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, as long as we both shall live. And, um, and they're defining boundaries to our marriage. But these boundaries don't confine us. They actually enable us to love one another more deeply. That's what they do. And all healthy and thriving relationships have boundaries and rules that you live by. Without it, it's just chaos, right? Parents, uh, kids, right? There's established boundaries, rules, right? You may, kids may not always like it, but as you grow older, trust me, I think you'll appreciate it, right? Later in life, it's like, oh, that was actually a good boundary. Um, and the key to looking at the law as beautiful and good and holy as believers is that once we see the person behind the law, then we see it as beautiful. Once you disconnect Jesus from the law, then the law is oppressive. But once you have a relationship with Jesus, the law becomes beautiful and good. Your obedience to God, his law, in fact, Jesus said, is a best indicator of whether you really love him or not. Jesus said, John 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, do you love Jesus? Keep his word. Keep his law. Hebrews 8.10 says, for this covenant... For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Once you're united to Christ, the Holy Spirit takes God's word, takes this law, the moral aspect of the law, he applies it to our hearts and say, live this out now. This is good. Obey God. Follow him with all your heart. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, just kind of closing out here. Um, you know, some of you, how, how does this apply to some of your situations a little bit? You know, some of you are still, I think, relating to God on the basis of success and performance in your relationship with him. Um, maybe you're a Christian, but your experience of Christian life has been just like what I mentioned earlier. It's just really roller, roller coaster-ish. Hey, if relationships, if work, if school, you know, is going well, and it's, your life is relatively stress-free, and you feel like you've been, you know, pretty good uh, all around, there's no real issues or problems or whatever, then it's like, oh, God is good, praise God, you know, I thank God, hallelujah, right? But then when things start falling apart, it's like, well, does God really love me? Um, you know, is God really there? And I'm not sure, and um, and then, you know, you kind of go into discouragement, maybe depression, anxiety, all these different things. But your relationship with God is still being based on what? On circumstances within you, emotions, all those things. And justification by faith, the gospel saying, no, Christ, Christ is always there. And others of you are steeped in constant shame, guilt, um, you know, you failed your own expectations. It's like, oh, how can I do that? You know, how, could I, how could I do something like that? And you're so disappointed with yourself, and you're, you feel like such a failure. But when you feel that way, when you feel really disappointed, the question I want to ask you is this. Who are you failing? Are you failing God or are you failing yourself? Sometimes we feel guilty because not that we felt, 
fail God, but because we're failing ourselves, our own standards, expectations of ourselves. And maybe in those moments, what God is trying to teach you is he's trying to show you that, you know what, it's not, um, he's trying to show you and humble you to, see, to help you see, that's right, this is exactly why you need Jesus. You're still living based on your ability to do it, on your moral efforts. And one thing that God has to do is he has to remove our self-confidence, our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance, and say, you can't do it. And it's meant to lead you to Jesus. Some of you still see God's law and his word as a bunch of rules, rather than something that's good and beautiful for your life. And, um, you know, when you see God's, God's word, God's law, you know, I want to I really encourage you or challenge you when Jesus says, hey, don't lust, because that's adultery in the heart, right? It's actually good that you're not objectifying another person. It's good that you're not being degraded in your own heart and life. When Jesus says, don't hold grudges against this person, don't withhold forgiveness, is he saying that because he's against you? No. Because he knows that if you hold grudges, if you withhold forgiveness from people, it's not just a it's, it's failure to live out the gospel, yes. But it's going to eat you alive. You're going you're gonna, to, you do you want to grow as a bitter person? When Jesus tells you to serve one another, love one another, um, he knows that the worst thing that you and I could get involved in is to become narcissistic, self-centered, where life is just about us, about our needs, and uh, just trying to, you know, make ourselves as, you know, to fulfill my potential in life. No. Jesus knows that narcissism is the worst thing for you. So when he says love, serve, sacrifice, he knows what's best. Jesus forgives lawbreakers like you and I. He forgives us so that we can be set free to follow him, follow his law. So love God, obey, serve, because this is what Jesus came for us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for um, how your word tells us the truth about who you are, tells us the truth about Jesus and we thank you for uh, your word that um, truly enlightens our hearts. Lord, it sets us in the right direction. We thank you for this gospel, for Jesus who set us free. And we praise you. We thank you for your work that enables us to live lives, the kind of lives that you meant for us to live. So help us, Lord, as a church to honor you. We pray this in Christ's name.